You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Craig Harris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty exciting stuff. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series in Exodus. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And in this section, we've kind of been going through the nitty-gritty of uh, the way the temple is in the tabernacle, the t- way the tabernacle is built and set up and all these details and rituals and rules. And now we're in this kind of end of this section and there's going to be kind of a few miscellaneous items that are going to be given to us uh, in, throughout this chapter. And the first one that we have before us today is on prayer. Now, if you've looked at the text ahead of time, which I'm sure you all read the text ahead of time, um, the <laughs> You might read that and you're like, Why, how is this about prayer? Or even when I read it in a moment, you're going to wonder, how is this about prayer? Uh, the word prayer is not mentioned even once in this passage. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you up front right now, so that way when we read it and we enter into this, you can kind of have this idea of prayer in your mind. And the reason why this is ultimately about prayer is because incense in the Bible is symbolic for the prayers of the saints, for the prayers of the people of God. Uh, let me read to you one instance where we see this really plainly in Revelation 5.8. It says this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so to have an altar of incense is to have an altar of prayer. And so with that in mind, let's read our text before us this morning from Revelation, uh, not Revelation, uh, Exodus 30. That'd be a very different sermon, wouldn't it? Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can also follow along here in the bulletin on page uh, 14. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight... He shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is the most holy to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. 
Most Holy Father, our Lord, our God, our King, we pray that your spirit would minister to us this morning through your word, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would exhort us where we need exhorting, and that you'd help us to be people that are not, that are not just hearers of the word, but we are doers of the word. Give us your grace and your peace this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when I was uh, in 10th grade in high school, there was this particular toy I really wanted. It was this toy, I don't even know if they still sell them now. They're called Connects. Does anyone know what Connects are? They're these kind of architectural kind of toys that you kind of build things with. And I wanted this particular one that was a roller coaster. Trust me, it was really, really cool. <laughs> You know, it would kind of have this loop, and it kind of go up and around, and even had this, like, little mechanism that would take it up to the top, and then you would kind of just let it go, and it kind of go around and around. It was really, really, really cool. And, um, but I had one problem, one thing that was in the way of me getting this roller coaster. You might be able to guess it. I had no money. I was in 10th grade. <laughs> so one summer, I decided, listen, I want to save up money to get this toy. So I had a friend who, their family, they, they farmed. They farmed cherries, and they farmed hops. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to work with them uh, throughout this summer and earn the money so I could get this thing that I really, really, really wanted. And so I get my first paycheck at the end of the first week. And uh, my buddy that I was working with said, hey, Craig, you want to go to the movies tonight? I'm like, sweet, let's go to the movies. Hey, you want to grab some food before and after? Sweet, sounds good. By the end of the night, I'd probably spent all my money. And so I had this dilemma. There was this thing I really wanted, uh, but I couldn't really get there because I kept on getting distracted by other things. And so I spoke to a, a trusted friend who gave me some sage advice. And he told me about this thing that you may know of called a, a budget. And, uh, you know, where you designate some money towards one thing and some money towards another thing. And then throughout uh, the summer, I was able to budget half the money I got went into this little saving pot where I could buy this toy. And the other half went towards, you know, some fun things. So I could go to the movie and have, you know, half a burrito maybe instead of the whole thing. And uh, so I did this. And then by the end of the summer, I was able to earn enough money and uh, get this toy. And I was really excited and I think for a lot of us, prayer is almost like this situation, where we have this thing that we really want, but we're not really sure how to get there, how to budget our time and our resources to get there. I think, I think we all are people who desire to be connected to God. We are all people, everyone in this room, even if you, you don't call yourself a believer, you want to connect with God, that's probably why you're here, because you want him to be real, even if you aren't sure that he is. And I think this is a natural desire to want to commune, to want to connect with God, the creator of the heavens and earth, because we're made to connect with him. And yet, prayer is hard for us. Prayer is one of the most challenging things for us to do uh, consistently. It is for me. And this doesn't make sense, does it? Why is it so hard to pray when it's the very thing we actually desire? To connect with God. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's interesting because there's certain things that if I desire, I, I'll, I'll take immediately. For instance, if I desired a French fry, it wouldn't take much for me to get over that hurdle to eat a French fry, right? But for whatever reason, with prayer, there's like this invisible barrier between us that, that keeps us from prayer. And in this passage, I think what we're going to find uniquely are habits of prayer, 
habits that will help us reach a life of prayer. And just like any other healthy thing in your life, from eating to exercising to saving money, these are habits that need to be developed, that need to be taught, that need to be cultivated. And I think here we find the beginning of the cultivating of these habits. And the first habit we find is this, that prayer has a place. Prayer has a place. The very first habit we see in this passage is the place of prayer. I think there's two aspects to this place. The first is this, that prayer is a physical place. Verse one, we see it clearly, and then throughout the the first few verses, that you shall make an altar on which to burn incense, you shall make it of acacia wood. This altar is made of physical, real things, It's an altar, it's a small table, about a foot and a half square, it's three feet tall, it's covered in gold. You would not be able to miss it just in the glowingness of the gold that it was covered with. And it was made for one purpose, and one purpose alone. He goes on and on to tell us it's not for any other sacrifice, it's not for any other incense, but just for one kind of incense. The recipe we'll actually get later in this chapter. But this incense was to be used for prayer represent the prayers of the saints. I think one of the reasons why the the altar is a physical thing and why we actually should be glad that it's a physical thing is that in our daily lives, our habits and our life revolve around physical places. Even this church coming into this meeting, we revolve and we have a physical space where we come and we worship from our homes to our workplaces. Think about your, your house for a minute. You have a garage that's for a particular purpose, for you know, a car or for tools, or for most of us, it's a collection of clutter, right? You have, a, you have a dining room that's meant for eating, a bathroom that's meant for cleaning and such. You have a, a bedroom that's for sleeping. And these rooms that are designated for particular tasks actually help us to do that task better, don't they? I think you really see this is when you try to use a room in a way in which it wasn't meant. You know, if you tried to park a garage in a kitchen, or if you tried to cook a a meal from your bed, it doesn't work very well. And I think we know this. And so it makes sense that we might need a room dedicated to the thing of prayer. You know, I actually have some good friends who are missionaries in kind of a remote part of the world where it's illegal to share the gospel. And one thing that they've done in every home that they've lived in is they've set aside a small place of prayer. Usually, it actually is a closet. And one of the things they do in that is they, they make it a place that's meant and designed for prayer. And so there's verses uh, on the wall. There's people and places that they're praying for, you know, also taped to the wall. There's a rug where they can kneel, where they can pray. And it's a dedicated spot. So when you go into that room, you know you're not going in there to eat dinner. You're going in there to commune with God. And I think that we would do well to have this kind of habit in our own lives, to find places where we can pray, to find places that cultivate the habit of praying in a particular location. It's one of those things that when you do that, you end up praying in that location almost by default because that's what that place is meant for. It's kind of like walking into a kitchen and open up the fridge and grabbing food even when you're not hungry. You've always wondered why does that happen? Well, it's because the kitchen is a place of food. And so when you walk into a kitchen, you're gonna wanna grab food. 
That is just, trust me. (laughs) Physical places are important for us in the cultivating of habits. And cultivating a habit of a place of prayer will help us to be more regular in prayer. But also, when we consider where this altar was placed in the tabernacle, we find the second aspect of the place of prayer. That it's not just a physical place, but it's actually a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one. The spiritual place of prayer is in the very presence of God. Verse 6 tells us that this this, uh, physical altar is to be put in front of the veil. The veil that separates the holy of holies from the rest of this holy place. Near the lampstands. And our, our prayers happen in the presence of God before his face. Think about incense for a moment. The way it burns, if you've ever burnt incense, it doesn't burn wild like a, like a bonfire with the smoke just kind of billowing up, but it's actually delicate. It curls and it twists and it kind of meanders until it kind of dissipates in the air. And if I were to light incense right now, even if you're in the back room and you couldn't see the smoke, how would you know that I just lit incense? You'd smell it. Right? Everyone in this room could smell incense. And so putting the prayers of the people before the veil, which is the very presence of God, it means that the prayers of the people would be smelled by God. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it, that God can like smell our prayers? It's like, oh, ew, what do they smell like? But the thing about smell is, whether it's good or bad, you can't ignore it, can you? And this is telling us that God does not ignore our prayers either. And the thing about this incense is that the fragrant, the incense, you know what it does? It actually makes our prayers smell sweet to the nostrils of God. And it lets us know that, listen, he hears them. He smells them. And just like there's a physical place to pray, our prayers themselves take on the physical form of this smoke and this incense, bringing our prayers into the spiritual presence of God. And in this spiritual place, God is inviting us, his people, into this profound relationship with him, into an intimacy where we share our lives, we share our concerns, and we enter into a lifelong, eternal conversation with the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who is right now sustaining all things, who wants you to come to speak with him, a God who is never too busy for you. <clears throat> I think that when we think about the nature of who God is and the, the, you know, the bigness of him, that he actually is sustaining all life and holding the globe together, we can, we can tend to think, man, maybe God really, uh, maybe he's not really, he doesn't really bothered with this little thing I'm dealing with in my day-to-day life. But what we learn from this is that no, God actually wants to be involved in your day-to-day life. And every little small pain and any small win and joy that you have, he's never too busy to hear you. In fact, I think one really helpful way to think about prayer is in a family meal. You know, in our own home, when we gather together for our dinner time every night, one of the things we started doing a few years back is we share our highs and our lows with one another. And so the question goes, okay, we each person takes a turn and we practice listening 
and uh, each person starts sharing their, what was the best thing that happened to you today, the most thing you're most excited about, and what was the saddest thing, the lowest thing, and uh, typically that goes somewhere along the lines of they're sad about their math homework. Um, I apologize if you're a math uh, teacher in the room. Um, but each person does this, and one of the things we learn is that in this, we're actually sharing in each other's joys and each other's burdens. And isn't this what God's doing? When he invites us to come to him and we share our joys and we share our burdens, God himself is sharing your joys and your burdens, and he bids you to come into his presence to share them. And so this place of prayer is a physical place that serves to help us to bring us before the very face of God, which leads to our second habit here. That prayer doesn't just have a place, but it actually has a time. This is the second habit of prayer is that prayer has a time. You know, it isn't enough for us just to have a place where we go and pray whenever we feel like it, but just like we have set-aside times for meals, we need set-aside times to actually pray. Otherwise, we probably would not do it. Because what we find about building good habits is that we need to plan the when. And we see this actually here in, a few, in, in three different ways. The first is this. In verse 7 and verse 8, we see that the prayer happens every morning when he lights the lamps and every evening when he sets the lamps. Every morning and every evening. The first and last parts of our days are to be dedicated to prayer. It's the bookend to our days that marks this ongoing conversation with God. I mean, and this kind of thing sounds easy enough. The first thing I do when I wake up is to pray. The last thing I do before I go to sleep is to pray. But if I'm honest, you know, one of the first and last things I see every day is this thing, right? My phone. And, and it's just a hard thing to break those kind of habits. But imagine with me how our lives might be oriented different, how our minds and our attitudes might be oriented different if the first thing we did in the morning was to pray, to ask God to walk with us in this day, to ask God to give us mercies and comforts and care and to walk with us in the day. And imagine if the last thing we did in the day was to meditate on a psalm, to pray, to bring our, our cares and our concerns from the day before the Lord, our anxieties of the day before the Lord, and then in actually a profound act of trust to lay our heads down and close our eyes and go to sleep, trusting that the Lord has us, that he has our anxieties, that he has our troubles. Because when we lack this kind of habit of prayer, I think the problem is that we can functionally live as if God really isn't there. It's like, it's just kind of like we go through the day, most of us probably don't think about our breathing from moment to moment. And this happens to us when we don't have habits of prayer. We can go through the day without giving second thought to the God who created us and sustains us and calls us sons and daughters. And what scheduled prayer in our day does is it centers us on the truth that God is there, that he is faithful, that he is kind, that his love never fails, that he actually wants to hear from you, that he's not too busy for you. So how do we orient our life around prayer? Well, this is the third aspect 
of the time of prayer was that it happens around our regular tasks. The, the priest lights the incense when he is doing his other regular tasks of tending to the lamps. He doesn't wake up in the morning just to attend to the incense, but it's actually attached to his other task of tending to the lamp. We see this in verse seven, that when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And so he lights the incense while he's already there. I think this is something that we could learn from, that we don't need to add an hour to our days, but we can work with the habits that we already have. Especially if prayer is an extremely difficult thing for you, you're probably not going to be super successful if tomorrow you're like, okay, I'm going to pray five times a day every day for the rest of my life. Just a guess, that probably won't happen. And so we need to find, you know, stepping stones to get to those kind of places. And this is giving us a beautiful one that we can work within the habits that we already have. For instance, if you're someone who commutes to work, what a great time to, instead of listening to the radio, to actually listen to a psalm. Or if you have a Bible reading plan, you can listen to the scripture reading from your Bible reading plan and spend some time praying, praying about your day, praying about the people that you work with. For instance, most of you probably already have a time uh, each evening that you pray as a family around the dinner table. You know, one small thing you could do was just extend that prayer time just a little bit. Add maybe a psalm reading. Add a little bit more, you know, meat to that time of prayer. And it doesn't have to take more than a few minutes, but even then you just add a a, a degree more of intentionality around a, a time that you already have together that's already set aside. And so we don't need to add a bunch of new things into our life, but I think we need to work with the habits that we already have. And so we find that the time of prayer bookends our days. It's attached to our daily tasks. And and thirdly, it happens every time in between. There's a a wordplay happening here, and it begins here with morning and evening. Verse 8 says that, And then verse 8 kind of carries that morning and evening idea on that it should be a regular part of our life. And then it says that this is supposed to happen throughout our generations. And to to put a point on it, it says throughout our generations twice for emphasis. And what this is trying to point out to us is is the time of prayer isn't just these set-aside appointed times, although it is that. But it's actually every time in between as well which for some of us might make us feel exhausted. Like, oh gosh, there's one more thing to add to the list of things that I'm not good at doing, to feel bad about. You kind of feel that kind of knot, and that, that tenseness, you know, in your core. You're like, okay, I guess I'll try, but I know I'm gonna fail anyway, so what's the point? And I think sometimes the reason why we get exhausted by prayer is because we aren't sure what, what to do in our prayer. <laughs> We aren't sure what are we supposed to talk about anyways, and how can I pray all day long? It's kind of like that awkward car ride with that person that you don't know very well and who isn't very conversational. Uh, you know the, the, the car ride I'm talking about. And for many of us, prayer is like that awkward car ride with God. But prayer, actually, is living every moment in the presence of God. Prayer is living every moment in the presence of God. And if this is true, then every moment of our life is to be lived in prayer, as Paul tells us, to pray without ceasing. 
Not as this exhausting thing that is meant to demand us to sit in silence for 10 hours a day, but as a rhythm of work and prayer that's meant to help us to live each moment with God, knowing that he is there, that he's for us, and that he wants us to prosper. Encouraging us to know that we can bring anything to him at any moment throughout our day, and that he actually wants to hear from us at any moment throughout our day. And knowing that he is with us even when we feel alone. You know, this is a habit that it's been hard for me to learn, and I've been able to learn this, to think about prayer more like this more and more, as I spent a little bit of time uh, spending some time at some Benedictine monasteries, which orient their daily routines around a rhythm of uh, work and prayer. John Neville, one of the other assistant pastors, uh, and I and a few other pastors in the presbytery, we gather together a couple of times a year to do prayer retreats, and we end up finding ourselves oftentimes at a monastery because they're quiet, they're meant to be places of prayer, and because they're really inexpensive and they feed you. Um, and so as we've done this, though, one of the things I've learned is this rhythm of work and prayer that they pray together five to seven times throughout the day. What happens is a bell will ring. Everyone gathers together, and they spend a few moments praying, chanting psalms, lifting their hearts to the Lord, and it doesn't usually last very long. And then they go about their separate ways, and they go to the various work that they have to attend to. Then a couple hours later, the bell rings. Everyone gathers together again, and they go through it again. And it's this habit. And one of the things I've learned is that it doesn't mean that you're only praying seven times a day. But what it means is that you, is that you live your day knowing and remembering that there is a God and that he goes with you in your day and in your work. And when we can cultivate the habits of prayer, habits of finding places and finding times set aside for prayer, not only does this affect us individually, but as a community, we become, become a community that is a stalwart in our city, that holds fast. We become wisdom in our neighborhood, like a tree planted by streams of water. So we become, as Christ church. And actually, at the end of this passage, it says that prayer is most holy to the Lord. These habits of prayer are called most holy. Well, what, is, what does that mean? You know, the, the phrase most holy uh, is used almost always in reference to the temple and the tabernacle. And it's that way because of the person who's in the temple and the tabernacle. And it's God, the one who is the holy one. So prayer is the most holy thing because in it we commune with the most holy one, which is God, Yahweh, our Father. And when we do pray, we are changed and transformed into his image. This is one of the reasons why we consider prayer to be a means of grace, a means to which God applies his grace into our minds and our lives. And where does the spirit of God live now? It actually lives inside of us, those who call him Father. And so we enter in, when we enter into these habits of prayer, we're entering into the most holy of work. When we pray for someone, when someone says, hey, can you pray for me, and you actually pray for that person, you are doing the most holy work. It's not just some like throwaway thing like we're saying, hey, good luck. But it actually means something. It actually matters. It's not just a throwaway thing. The challenge for us is that we're fickle creatures, is that even when we implement these habits into our life, even if we were monkish about it, 
we forget about God sometimes. And we go through the motions and our hearts are far away. So how is our prayer most holy to God when it's not wholly devoted? This is the third point, and it's this. Because prayer has a person. Prayer has a person. Notice the instructions given here are given to Aaron in verse 7. That the priest, Aaron, is the one to do the work of lighting the incense, of representing the people's concerns before the Lord. He is the one who's making sacrifices, uh, putting the blood from the annual atonement sacrifice on the horns of the altar to set it apart for this one used. The priest is the one who's actually doing the work. And it is in his work uh, that the incense burns even while we sleep. And the incense is burning even before we wake up. The priest is bringing the prayers of the people before the Lord, even when we can't do it and even when we do it poorly. And the beautiful thing for us is this is the very thing that's happening with Christ Jesus right now. That he's taking our prayers and that he's bringing them before the Father. We read this about this in Romans 8. That Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus, the atonement sacrifice, the one who died, the one who was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God is praying and thinking about you. That's a pretty profound thing to think about. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who was crucified, died, and three days later, he rose from the dead, is right now praying, interceding for you. And he knows your name. And even when we forget your name as you're coming to take the, the supper, right? Jesus doesn't. He knows you. And he invites you to come. And even when we forget to pray, and our prayers are more going through the motions than anything, Jesus is always praying for you. And the beautiful thing is that even as we grow in prayer, the most holy act of prayer actually changes us too. It brings us closer to the heart of God. Because it's hard to be praying for your neighbor one moment and then cursing him out the next. Prayer is a most holy act. And as a community of God, a community that is to be a kingdom of priests, we are invited into this holy act as Christ is leading us, teaching us to pray, just like he taught his disciples. This is kingdom language, just like going to another country and learning the language of a new kingdom in prayer, we are learning the language of God and his kingdom. And so we as a people, as we grow in developing these habits of prayer, we don't develop them so that God will love us. We, 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 we develop them because he already does love us. And his love for you is so sure, so, so complete, so unwavering that it draws us to him, encourages us to be with him, and so may we be this kind of people, a people of prayer, a people who develop strong habits of prayer, that we can be a witness in Bellingham and to the ends of the earth, remembering that Christ, our great high priest, is always praying for us, considering us, and inviting us to come to him. Pray with me. Most holy and merciful Father, our great God in heaven, 
We give you thanks that you consider us your creation. And even when we forget about you, you don't forget about us. Even when our prayers are not in line with your will, you align them with your will. We pray that you would make us a holy people, that you would give us courage and strength and stamina to enter into this most holy act of prayer. We need you and we need your spirit of grace and your mercy applied to our hearts and minds that we can accomplish these things. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.